What if the official numbers for coronavirus cases and deaths in the United States aren't actually true? What if they are a severe undercount that omits hundreds of thousands of infections that spread through the population undetected in January and February before social distancing restrictions were imposed and schools and businesses shut down in a belated attempt to combat the deadly virus? That is increasingly the view of many top scientists who are trying to get a handle on just how big is the pandemic we are dealing with. We'll talk to one of those doctors who has done groundbreaking work on what he calls the silent chain of transmission of COVID-19. And we'll talk to George Packer of The Atlantic on his recent piece arguing that America is fast resembling a failed state on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, these numbers uh, or models showing uh, the degree of undercount in the official uh, figures for coronavirus are really disturbing because if we, as some of these experts suggest, and one of them we're going to be talking to in just a few minutes, if we missed all these cases, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of infections, it totally scrambles uh, how we're dealing with the pandemic and how we're going to deal with it going forward. Yeah, when I saw this story uh, on the front page of the New York Times um, a little while ago, this Northeastern University study led by an Italian doctor, uh, a um, physicist actually, named Alex Vespagnini, or Alessandro Vespagnini, his Italian name, I was really stunned because the numbers were so stark. Think about this. The first case of coronavirus was detected in New York City on March 1st. But according to the statistical models that his team developed, there may have been as many as 10,000 silent carriers just traveling through New York City among all of us who live here. And the CDC, Robert Redfield, the head of the CDC, you know, was talking at White House briefings about in the early days that the numbers of uh, cases being in the you know, in in the teens, when actually it was in the tens of thousands. And as we now know, this is a highly, highly infectious disease that uh, spreads and the numbers go up um, exponentially. So it has huge implications for health policy decisions going forward, as, as you pointed out. We are now living in a time when uh, governors in many states are lifting these mitigation strategies, social distancing, businesses are opening up again, schools in some places are are beginning to open up. Uh, and there may be a period of, of weeks when uh, things uh, seem to be going okay. But according to this study, and what a lot of experts are not now saying, because of the silent chain of transmission, 
the disease can and likely would come roaring back. Are we prepared to deal with that? I don't think so. We don't still don't have anywhere near the kind of testing that we need and contact tracing that we need to deal with this problem. It just underscores how little we really know about this virus and how it's been interacting with the population, how many people have been carrying it with asymptomatically, so don't know that they've got the disease, how long it lasts in the environment, how long it lasts in the air, on, on solid surfaces. There's, there's just so much that, you know, our best experts can't really give us fully confident answers to that it makes trying to figure out what the policy should be all that more difficult. But certainly uh, lifting the restrictions, as some of these states are doing, do not seem to be advised, if any, of what these uh, doctors are saying. So it's a it's It also, a tough one. by the w- one other thing, it also suggests that for all the crowing that uh, President Trump has been doing about, uh, you know, his his great decision at the end of January to close our borders to travelers from China, and then a few weeks later in March uh, from Europe, that may not have made much of a difference at all. You know, he, he made the decision on January 31st, I believe, uh, with regard to China. By January 31st, there were already many, many thousands of people in this country who likely had the disease. Yeah. Hey, a couple of other matters I want to just bring up before we um, get to our guests. Uh, First, we talked yesterday with Ryan Grimm of The Intercept about uh, the Tara Reid allegations. And uh, as you can see, if you're reading the newspapers today, uh, it's clear these um, the claims are getting increasing traction if for no other... because, mainly because more and more corroboration seems to be coming forward. Other people who Tara Reid talked to about uh, the fact that, as she alleges, she was sexually assaulted by Joe Biden in 1993 while she was a Senate aide. And we are now learning of additional witnesses she told about this contemporaneously or certainly years before she decided to come forward. So that's going to be a problem. I do want to flag one aspect of this that I think we'll be talking about quite a bit in coming weeks, which is that Biden's records, all his Senate records, his personnel records and everything else is locked up under key at the University of Delaware and not due to be publicly released for at least a couple of years. That is after the election. I don't think that's sustainable. It's not going to be sustainable in the short term because people are going to want to see those records to see the personnel records on Tara Reid and uh, why she left the Biden office, but also more broadly. I mean, he was a United States senator for decades. He was involved in lots of controversies. Seeing those Senate records seems to me to be fundamental to vetting and evaluating any presidential candidate. And uh, much like Trump's uh, 
taxes-inspired demands for their public release when he started um, running for president. He was, of course, resisted. He continues to resist those demands to this day. But it seems to me that in the interest of transparency, uh, anybody who is calling for the release of Trump's tax records ought to now be calling for the release of Joe Biden's Senate records under lock and key in well, we, Delaware. And we saw a, uh, a kind of a similar situation in this uh, Democratic uh, primary race with Mike Bloomberg, who was had come under yep. pressure for keeping under lock and key you know, these uh, agreements yeah. with uh, various women who worked for him, who overheard him allegedly saying sexist or otherwise inappropriate comment, and they were subject to these non-disclosure agreements. Uh, right. And uh, he came under a lot of uh, a, a lot of well, pressure actually, to release yes, them from those, from, and he from and Elizabeth he did in Warren. some cases. It was it was Elizabeth yeah. Warren who was yeah, you right. know, leading the charge and did so well in in skewering Bloomberg during those debates on this. I you know I talked. Uh, yesterday about how I think the Reid allegations are particularly awkward for Senators Harris and Klobuchar because of their prominent role in the uh, Kavanaugh hearings. But as you point out, it could well be as much a uh, awkward, it could be just as awkward for Warren, given um, the way she went after Bloomberg for allegations of sexual harassment. Uh, we one should, other... we should, uh, no, before you get to that, what we, we just should say, because I think it bears saying every time we discuss this, that the Biden campaign has categorically denied that this episode with Tara Reid um, ever happened at all. So that is their position. We'll see if the campaign or the vice president has anything else to say about this, but that's their position. Well, I, as far right as now. I can tell, Biden has not yet been asked in a single well, interview. He, he has not, at least up until this recording, he had not been asked. I think that's going to change. I mean, I've seen on uh, cable television, for example, on CNN last night, I think it was Don Lemon who yeah. was uh, going after Stacey Abrams pretty hard uh, on this issue because she is very overtly, very publicly running to be Joe Biden's um, running mate. And so I think we're going to be seeing the Biden camp getting more questions about this. And Biden, you know, he is eventually going to have to do interviews and and he's going to get question questions about this so you know we'll 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 see what happens i still think you know last point on this um given where we are in this country given what this the stakes of this election uh given um how strongly democrats feel about ousting uh, donald trump from the white house that if this remains an isolated case that it's not part of a larger pattern of misconduct. And uh, up up until now, there's been no suggestion that it is that um, Democrats are going to largely stick with Joe Biden. We shall see. You're probably right. But uh, one never knows, especially in uh, in this environment. Another final matter of shameless self-promotion, a conspiracy land, a special six part podcast brought to you by Skullduggery has been uh, formally nominated nominated for a Webby Award in the category of Best Documentary. In addition to the judges choosing a winner, I learned this week that there's also a People's Choice vote in each category. So all of our Skullduggery listeners can go on to the website of the Webby Awards and um, vote for Conspiracy Land. 
Uh, I would say vote early, vote often, act as if this is a Chicago election, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stuff the ballot box. Uh, yeah. Mail, no, mail in a, voting it, fraud. It, uh, anyway, it, I know it's all online. But uh, seriously, folks, uh, we are very proud of Conspiracy Land. And um, so if those of you who listened to it and enjoyed it want to weigh in, please do. And now let's get to our guests. Okay, we're very pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, Alex Vespagnini. Dr. Vespagnini is the Sternberg Family Distinguished University Professor at Northeastern University and Director of the University's Network Science Institute. So, Dr. Vespagnini, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, I want to say, start by saying you're a physicist who uses network theory and computational epidemiology to understand and track the spread of diseases. And so before we get into your really fascinating study of the spread of uh, coronavirus, I want you to just quickly explain to our listeners what that means, because I can assure you network systems and uh, computational epidemiology are are, uh, terms that we have never used on this podcast before. So tell us what that is, and then we'll get into the study. Well, you know, if we want to make it simple, it's like the the weather forecast, but for infectious diseases. And so what you do is that you collect a large amount of data on population, so where we live, what is the age structure of the population, and then how we travel, how we take, uh, you know, international flight, domestic flights, uh, how we commute to work and schools. All this creates in the computer a kind of synthetic world. The synthetic world where people have, they do their whereabouts and we, we you know, they take, uh, they do their, their daily activities. On top of this synthetic world, we can have some people who are infectious and then start to spread the disease uh, during their their synthetic life. And so basically what we do is to have a large set of equations and we simulate billions of individuals in their movement and the spread of the disease with them. What we try to do finally is to have uh, a projection of the path of the epidemic. In the same way, we try to project the path of a hurricane when we do weather forecast. But in this case, you know, for infectious diseases, we talk about the number of deaths, the where and when and how much of the epidemic. Okay, so so you and your team discovered using this kind of modeling that by the time the first cases were detected in the United States, before most of us had heard terms like social distancing or sheltering at home or knew what a N95 mask was, there were literally thousands of cases in this country going completely undetected. I think I read in one of the stories that by March 1st, there were 23 cases detected around the country, but your model showed there were probably more like 28,000. And obviously with an infectious disease, the numbers go up exponentially. So, So in effect, for weeks and weeks, coronavirus was basically right under our noses and we had no idea. So why is that and what are the implications of your discovery? Yeah, well, what we we identified with the model is that we were sitting on an invisible epidemic and uh, that was not actually in a sense, unexpected epidemiologically. What, you know, for uh, the first few weeks, uh, we hoped that the epidemic could be contained in China. Then by mid-February, uh, we uh, we have seen 
importation of cases from from China and other places in the world. That means that you know we were not able to identify all the cases. Uh, and, uh, you know, for a disease like COVID-19, where part of the people are asymptomatic or they have just mild symptoms, you know, they they start spreading and start those invisible chains of transmissions uh, in the country. And it takes time before you realize that you have a large number of cases because, you know, any surveillance systems for diseases only capture the tip of the iceberg. And so you need to create a critical mass before you see the emergence of the disease. You know, at that time in January and February, no country in the world had the capacity to do mass, massive testing for, for the disease. And so what we had is that we were testing based on our travel history. But when once the disease starts to spread invisibly in the country, you know, the, the people infected, they do not have a travel history. They are just being infected in the U.S. And they show up perhaps uh, in a doctor's office or at the emergency room with, you know, with symptoms which are the one of the, of the flu. And so, you know, that was January, February, the months where, you know, a lot of uh, flu-like activity in the country. And so the epidemic has been basically invisible spreading for almost a couple of months in the, in, in the United States, as well as in other countries like UK, Italy, Germany. And, you know, we were all marching toward then the pandemic that we are experiencing now. Doctor, I, I get the theory as to why it would be highly likely that there would be this sort of invisible spreading early on, but I'm a little unclear as to how you are able to quantify it in your models. Can you explain? Yeah, because our model actually is simulating the trajectory of the of the epidemic starting from China. So the work that we did is to start analyzing the epidemic in China. And then we, since our model includes all the data about international and domestic transportation across the world, what we have is that really our models tells how many people from China traveled to California, to New York, to London, to Rome, and how many of them, you know, were possible spreaders. And so statistically, we can infer on how many cases we imported in those countries and how many transmission chains of the disease they generated. And that allow us to project numbers and do inference. This is, again, it's like looking at the future trajectory of a, of, uh, of a hurricane. We look at the future trajectory of this epidemic and the more obviously data we have from uh, and from the field and the more we can sharpen our, our uncertainties and be sure of what happened in February and actually in January and February and March in the US as other countries across the world. Dr. Vispagnini, we're gonna get into how your study can help guide public policy decisions going forward. I just want to understand one thing. Based on um, what your study found and based on what you, you act, I mean, you're not surprised that it found that. You, you said that. I guess what I'd like to know is, what does it tell us about what we should have been doing and could have been doing to prepare better for this pandemic? Because I understand that you made public some of these findings as early as February. Yeah, you know, this is one of the things I, I would say the modeling community and everybody who was working in uh, in in trying to understand the, the, the pattern of the disease was uh, uh, was in a sense converging on the fact that we were having transmission in the US uh, and to 
what extents then in the, in the second part of uh, second half of february and then early march it was clear that we were experiencing uh, a lot of uh, uh, infections you know it's uh, the only problem is that you know how this gets into policy making and and i'm always trying to use this kind of uh, again of uh, of analogy you know when you have the projection of the hurricane you have also some very nice uh, satellite uh, photos of the huge hurricane across the sea you know you see it uh, it's very de- and then you take decision based on uh, actually on numerical models that project that that evolution uh, in the case of diseases is more complex because you know uh, you don't have a clear picture of what's happening you have uh, you have the numerical models telling you yes there is spreading and uh, and then you should decide if shutting down a country based on those numbers and that's that's very tough to do so that's that's one of uh, one of the thing and it, it this happen all across the world you know you have to see the cases happening for real before actually taking uh, taking uh, taking action what to do is obviously uh, you need to have a better better handle on how many cases uh, where they are you need to do more testing you d- need to do a lot of contact tracing uh, you need to chase the disease uh, how to say in all places where you as soon as you see as you see any a sign of uh, infections of deaths due to covid etc unfortunately in january and february no country had that capacity you know to do the massive massive testing that you need to get uh, handle on this invisible disease and uh, now i think the importance of what we are understanding about what happened in january and february is just because we want to reopen the country and we don't want that to happen again well so then so th- so then how do you react when you see the governors of texas and florida and georgia moving very aggressively right now to open up their economies, knowing that this is a can be, you know, a, a hidden enemy and that you could go for some weeks uh, without evidence of it. And then all of a sudden it comes roaring back. Well, you know, at this point, we are in a situation where there is a tension between what two major views on, on this epidemic. One is the public health. We need to save lives. We need to bring down the number of the infections. Uh, we need to uh, to have hospitals that are not overwhelmed and so on and so forth. On the other, there is the economy. There is people that needs to go back to work. We need to get uh, our uh, our country uh, working again. And that's, you know, very important too. Now, what we need to understand is how to go back to normal with a safety net. And so that's where I I tell everybody is to be patient, uh, you know, because we need to build uh, this infrastructure that will allow in the future not to have the invisible spread. So rushing to the reopening, uh, if we don't have the capabilities to capture the, the disease, the invisible spreading of the disease, then we run the risk uh, to find ourselves in one month, two months, or perhaps in the in the next fall in the same situation of two months ago. And then we should perhaps go and shut down the country again. While instead, if we do the reopening slowly in a very progr- uh, in a very gradual way, and then at the same time we have built a system around so that we can isolate cases, identify cases, do the test, the tracing, and treatment of those cases in the proper way, then we can reopen with safety. And so I, you know, that's the trade-off that I think each state, each governor should look at. So if I'm reopening, I will be able to you know, to do the test, the tracing and treatment that I need 
to keep the epidemic at bay. Otherwise, so, you know, you have to be very careful. Doctor, the uh, the generally accepted number for cases in the United States is now about a million thirty eight thousand. If I understand correctly, your model suggests that's a undercount. Uh, so I wanted to ask you first what you think the real number is of total cases in the United States per your model. And then just looking at the trajectory that we've seen over the last week or two, where do you think those numbers are headed? both in terms of total cases and deaths, which are now approaching 60,000. Yeah. So what happens is, uh, you know, that uh, we always say in, uh, in the disease detection that there is a kind of uh, rule of thumb for, for the numbers. What you observe is always, you, you know, if you have one million cases, it's likely that you have to multiply by 10. <laughs> By 10? So you think there actually could be as many as 10 million cases in the United States? Yeah, it could be. And actually, our models point to, you know, what we call the cumulative infection rate, uh, two numbers which are in that uh, in that ballpark at that moment. So nine millions or something like that. It seems a big number, but you have always to think about the fact that, you know, uh, a large fraction of uh, of people who have been infected with covid have not, you know, had very mild symptoms. Uh, uh, a fraction of them are basically asymptomatic, so not showing any sign of the disease. So you have, you know, you have that, as I was saying, there, there is this iceberg under the surface of what we get from hospital and from testing out there at this, uh, at this stage. So the numbers are much larger. The numbers that you look with more, you know, that seems uh, uh, that represent better what is the evolution of the disease are the deaths that are generally much better recorded. So and we are into the 60,000 and uh, they will will grow, uh, unfortunately. Now, what is the trajectory at the moment? So if you look at the United States uh, as the country, you know, we are now on on a plateau so that the all the lockdowns and the stay at home order that have been issued in by the various states are working so the number of infection the rate at which infections are are, are spreading in the countries is decreasing and the number of deaths takes longer to show that uh, positive trend because generally there is a two to three weeks delay, but we are getting there. So there is a positive outlook for what is the, how to say, what we call the success in flattening uh, the curve. No, we have been able to to choke an epidemic that if unmitigated would be at this point uh, skyrocketing. What is the future? It's not depending on the epidemic. It depends on us. It depends on our choices, what the governors will do, what the uh, federal state will do, and we as citizens, what we will do. Because, you know, if we will be able to keep social distancing, if we will build the infrastructure to control the epidemic, well, then the number of deaths will decline, the epidemic will have low prevalences, and then we will have, you know, we will get to a point where we will have a lot of other possible interventions. We will have pharmaceutical interventions, we will have vaccines. So we will have a lot of a lot of weapons that we will be able to use against against the disease. So, you know, it's not just the disease itself. It's uh, us and the disease that will uh, shape the future. 
But uh, doctor, we, we don't have those therapeutics yet. We don't have a vaccine yet. So in terms of what we, we need to do, I, I want to ask you about testing and what your study tells you about the kind of testing kind of regimen that we need in this country right now. I think we're testing about 250,000 people a day. Most people think that's not nearly enough. How much testing do we need in this country? And I guess a quick follow-up to that is we're only really testing people who exhibit symptoms. Do you think, given what your study shows, that we have to be essentially testing everyone? No, it's impossible to test uh, everyone. We can't do that, and that should be done on a routine basis. So testing uh, the, asymptomatic, the, the asymptomatic is uh, really... Uh, like chasing ghosts, uh, uh, I would say that we need to increase our capacity of testing the symptomatic individuals. So we are not capturing all the symptomatic individuals. We capture a fraction of them, the one who have the most uh, uh, severe symptoms, the one that we are able to identify. We need to do a much better job at that. Our testing capacity should scale up in the in the millions digit. So we need to have states that are able to, uh, you know, to identify as possible and as promptly all the symptomatic cases, and then from those cases to go and trace their contacts, and possibly, you know, isolate them preemptively, test them to see if there is at that point you have, I would say, indications that those are possibly infected people. So you might detect more uh, more asymptomatic cases, uh, isolate them, and so on and so forth. And the, the more you do that, the more the number of uh, infection goes down, and the easier it is to test and trace those people. So it's a, a kind of a virtuous uh, feedback cycle in which, you know, the better you are at this job, and the easier is the job that you're doing. And so at this point, this is why we have those massive lockdowns that are killing the economy, are driving us crazy, because you want to bring those numbers down and have, do a better job at this identification of cases, isolation and tracing, and so on and so forth. But for sure, we need more capacity. We need also seroprevalence testing to understand what is really the actual number of people that have been already infected in the population. We need people able to do the contact tracing. So uh, you have probably heard California and other states are hiring, uh, you know, thousands of people able to do this job. So we need to build a kind of, uh, uh, I know it's a scary word, but it's a kind of a war economy against this uh, this, uh, this uh, disease. So we really need to throw everything we have at, at COVID, and that's the way, the best way to, to go back to a normal life in the next few months. Doctor, I just want to take you back to the numbers for a moment. You said before that, you know, your model, uh, the real number of infected Americans is closer to 9 to 10 million. If that's the case... What does that say about where the death total is headed if we're at 60,000 now and, in fact, you know, as many as 10 million people can be infected? How do you see the trajectory of the death total? 
playing out? You know, this is uh, we are going uh, and uh, the, the numbers are telling us that we will go and probably go closer to the 100,000 deaths at, you know, at the end of this first wave, unless, uh, you, you know, those numbers are always we can be better or worse, depending on how good we will be with the social distancing and with the uh, with the healthcare system. So those numbers are going to grow. It, they will and should grow at a slower pace. You know, if you think about what we have experienced in the last three, four weeks, uh, those are high rate of, uh, of the disease. However, now they have, they have plateaued. You have always to keep in mind that, you know, without those uh, aggressive uh, social distancing measure, we would have an exponential increase. I can, you know, an unmitigated case of the epidemic uh, as of today would be probably bringing us in numbers that are close to uh, 400 to half a million deaths, basically, you know. But your model currently is projecting about 100,000 deaths. I can go and look at this, at, at what the model is telling us uh, as uh, of today. Uh, let me check. And today we are uh, projecting, uh, uh, you know, if we project by, let's say, mid-May, and you are in the 80,000 deaths at this point, 90,000 deaths. These are ballpark numbers, as you know, we do statistical. Do you go further beyond mid-May? No, that's something that, you know, it's like for the weather forecast. You don't want to go too far away because it will depend on what the you know, uh, the reopening will be, if we rush to reopening or not, if we have the infrastructure in place, those numbers will change depending on what, what we do. So even now, you know, when you say, well, we assume that uh, until May, May 18th, you know, mid-May, most of the states still are extending their stay at home order and everybody's very cautious on reopening. So we can, how to say, have projections uh, that tell us, you know, if the situation is, uh, is uh, we are good as we are uh, at it now, you know, we project into this number. If we start to rush and reopening, you know, the, the, the trajectory in each state might, might change and those numbers should uh, could change. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to do, you know, if I would tell you what is the, 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 the if it rains or not in, in six months, uh, you will laugh at me. No, so that's. <laughs> we won't laugh at you. I, I promise. <laughs> uh, doctor. <laughs> no I... laughing matter to any of this. <laughs> yeah. right. I have a, a couple of a couple more quick questions. One is, do you agree with experts like Dr. Fauci that there will be a second wave uh, in the fall or winter? And do your models tell you anything at all about uh, what a second wave could look like? You know, the second wave, it looks uh, we look uh, like again what we will allow to the disease to to be you know i assume that we should not be in a situation like the one that was in uh, in january or february so we should have a much better control of the disease there will be a resurgence in the fall very likely because we know though these kind of viruses tend to have a resurgence in in the winter time so you know <laughs> We will have to to be in a much better place in terms of fighting this disease when we approach September, October. If we don't want to be again in a in a situation where we have to think about major shutdowns, I I'm optimistic. I think we will have much more 
control on, on it and we will understand much earlier if we have hotspots or places that we have to perhaps uh, to to work hard in those areas and uh, and i assume we will not be again in a situation of a widespread major uh, major shutdown but we will have uh, a fight uh, very likely in uh, in in the fall and, and and winter time you know this is something that i'm telling everybody this epidemic uh, that what we are living now is one battle you know but it's not the the war you know, we will have other battles against this virus and we need to be ready. This is not a sprint. It's more of a marathon, unfortunately. And mm -hmm. we will uh, we will need to be prepared for the other battles. The more we are prepared, the better we'll, we will fight and the less, uh, how to say, uh, problems we will have and the less, uh, you know, we will have to, to suffer because of it. And then I, I must ask you, and I think some of our listeners may have detected that you're Italian from your name. Italy, you know, was the, the epicenter of this uh, disease before it moved to the United States and uh, went through hell. What is the situation there? What can we learn from the Italian experience battling uh, COVID-19? Yeah, you know, they had, they were the first to get into into this pandemic and they suffered a, a very large number of deaths and cases. They are just now starting the, the how to say the, the process to reopen and it's not yet they have not yet uh, yet reopened uh, let me say then it's not just italy all europe is in the same situation like the united states france uh, germany uh, uk netherlands spain a uh, large number of deaths and countries completely shut down in italy now since they are in a sense uh, just a few weeks ahead of us in this trajectory we will have to look carefully at what is the reopening strategy and if that strategy is a good one we will have to monitor that situ the situation there and be sure that you know if they do mistake we learn from those mistakes and uh, and if instead if they have a smart way of approaching uh, uh, the reopening we can probably learn how how to do it better i think uh, the prevailing uh, way of reopening in the in in europe is to be very cautious and uh, and doing a very gradually so that you know the first things you want is to reopen the production system so you want to reopen and 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 get back people to work and then you know see what happens you always wait a couple of weeks two or three weeks to see the effect of that partial reopening and with the hope that you don't have to trace back and and then perhaps try to reopen a little, uh, a few more other activities. This is a, a process that is unfolding on the scale of, uh, of several weeks. So unfortunately, um, we will not be able here to, to just bring back to our, uh, to our normal life. We need to be patient and, and fight the disease with initially a few baby steps and then, you know, move uh, more and more into, into, into back into the normal life. Well, Dr. Alessandro Vespagnini, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, thanks for your important work. Uh, we know it will uh, and hope that it will guide policymakers uh, going forward uh, so that uh, we can uh, mitigate the spread of the disease. Um, and we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you very much for having me here. It was very nice to talk to you. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. 
We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. But we'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have with us the distinguished staff writer for The Atlantic, George Packer. George is the author of Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century, and also The Unwinding and Inner History of the New America. And he's also just written a piece in The Atlantic called We Are Living in a Failed State. George, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, it's good to be with you both. So let's start with that Atlantic piece. You basically argue that the United States under Donald Trump has become a failed state. Explain why. Well, I don't argue that it meets the textbook definition of a failed state. I've reported from a few and I know what they look like. And that's not us. We still have a functioning government at the local level, police, fire, We have a federal government that can still send out checks and has the world's most powerful military, et cetera. So we're not a failed state in the way that Sierra Leone was a failed state during its civil war or Iraq was a failed state after the invasion. But we felt and feel like a failed state in the sense that we cannot look to the national government for any organized and effective help during this enormous crisis. We can't look to it for organization, for implementation, for coordination, for all the things that only a national government can do in order to bring a country back from the brink of a calamity. And we can't look to it for concern. That's the thing that really struck me, especially in March, when we didn't know what this was and we're trying to figure out what to do and whether to stop sending our kids to school or stop going into work, not only were there no instructions and guidance coming from the top, but there was no sense that it mattered, that the federal government cared about American citizens' lives. And that, together with the chaos and the collapse of the kind of the structures that would have been able to mitigate the pandemic. That's what reminded me of those other countries I've been in and and that have had the true misfortune of being textbook failed states. The government didn't care. You know, uh, you're, there were quite a few lines that uh, leapt out in the piece, but uh, in particular, what you said about President Trump, uh, and I just want to read you read you back some of what you wrote. Donald Trump saw the crisis, the COVID crisis, almost entirely in personal and political terms. Fearing for his reelection, he declared the coronavirus pandemic a war and himself a wartime president. But the leader he brings to mind is Marshal Philippe Patan the French general who, in 1940, signed an armistice with Germany after its rout of French defenses, then formed the pro-Nazi Vichy regime. Like Patan, Trump collaborated with the invader and abandoned his country to a prolonged disaster. That's uh, 
<laughs> That's not an analogy I'd heard before. I want you to perhaps elaborate. And also the line, like Patan, Trump collaborated with the invader. Mm. Who's the invader he's collaborating with? Well, I know there's a real limit and maybe even a danger in using the war metaphor for what is, after all, a biological fact, a virus. I was kind of calling the president's bluff because he's the one who said I'm a wartime president. And I began to think, well, if that's true, if that's at all true, what kind of wartime leader is he? And it immediately struck me he's the kind who essentially mounts no defense, who allows the invading force in and then makes a deal with it and essentially says, I will look for the best deal for myself even if it means abandoning my country to a disaster. That's what Trump did from the beginning. It's what he's doing now. When he talks about reopening the economy before we have any idea of what the infection rate is in most parts of the country, because we don't have the testing capacity, he's saying, and I think David Frum, my colleague at The Atlantic, has said this, he's saying, I'm willing to risk a certain number of American lives in order to get the economy up and running in time for the election so that I don't have to carry this albatross with me to my reelection. I know I'm imputing a cynical motive, but I don't see what other motive to impute because Trump never seems capable of expressing anything other than his own narcissistic needs, hurts, vanity, vainglory when, when it comes to something, to, to a pandemic that's killed 60,000 Americans. He cannot convey the slightest bit of empathy for the rest of the country. Instead, it all seems calculated according to what benefits him, what uh, flatters his vanity, what his enemies are saying about him, and what will lead to his staying in power in November. George, as much as you blame uh, President Trump for where we are right now, this sort of state of decline that we're in, you see it as a as a progression. I think you talk about there having been two major crises before coronavirus uh, in this young century of ours, 9-11 and then the economic crash of 2008. In those first two, I think there were positive uh, aspects to our response and our ability to kind of come together. But we, I think you also say that we saw the kind of, uh, they contain the seeds of our current weakness and clear signs of American decline. So talk about that, that downward evolution and how you see that kind of uh, unfolding. Yeah, that's an important point, Dan, because one reason why the France 1940 analogy came to me was because in, in France in 1940, an entire society was found wanting. And I think, although there have been many bright lights in our society in 2020 in response to the coronavirus, in many ways, we are all found wanting. Our, our economy is found wanting. Our protection of workers is found wanting. Our ability to provide health care, regardless of class, race, location, is found wanting. So I, I think this is deeper than the catastrophic failure of one president, one administration. You know, on 9-11, I was in New York, and the instinctive response of the country was to rally around the city, as if New York had taken a hit for the whole of the country. You know, it's kind of a long tradition to see New York as being 
eccentric, if not downright un-American. It's more like an international city. But on that day, New York was an American city. And I remember seeing firemen coming from Indiana and from the South, driving on their own time, their own money to help at the recovery at Ground Zero. And that may have been a residue of an earlier time when we still had enough of a sense of social cohesion that for all the divisions between city and country, et cetera, there was still a sense that we're all Americans. That began to wear out in the next two decades with a series of setbacks. The Iraq war and the Bush administration's failed policies after 9-11. The financial crisis, which did bring together Americans in the sense that so many people suffered from it, but it divided us in the response with part of the country moving to the left toward Occupy, part moving toward the Tea Party, the Republicans in Congress making sure that the new Democratic president could not bring us out of the recession quickly. By, by So they stood in the way of his stimulus. Now they're voting for a stimulus that's two or three times as big. But when a Democrat was in the White House, the Republican Party absolutely refused to help. So you could see the, the divisions of partisanship and of maybe of re region and geography and class and race beginning to really start to tear at the social fabric. And the sense among a lot of ordinary people that, you know, the, the elites got away with something, that, that the banks and government and people at the top had, had somehow gotten out of it clean and easy, whereas ordinary people, middle class and working class people suffered. And that also began this wearing out of trust in elites and in institutions and in experts and in government itself, which now I think has accelerated dramatically under Trump because Trump has actively, I'd say, encouraged that feeling partly by running an incompetent government. So, but we were in some ways primed to fail when coronavirus hit us, partly because these structures and this social glue had really been wearing down for many years. You know, you, you go beyond the idea of uh, kind of this sort of polarization and deep partisanship in our political culture, and you talk about a kind of a nihilism in our public life. I want to ask you about one politician in particular who you write about, and, and that is Kelly Loeffler, the junior senator from Georgia, who, you know, I think and your reading sort of in epitomized this, uh, this sort of nihilism in our public life. You call her a dangerous parasite. What did she do and why does she represent this kind of decay in our political culture? You know, in some ways, there's nothing at all remarkable about Kelly Leffler or Loeffler because she's a kind of characteristic figure. She came out of the financial world. She and her husband have an extremely rich and powerful financial services firm. She became a big donor to Republican candidates. And when uh, a Senate seat in Georgia came empty in 2019, the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, looked around and decided to give it to a woman who had absolutely no relevant experience. Her relevant experience was giving money to Republican candidates. And that is a, a kind of garden variety corruption that we've gotten very used to, and yet that is kind of shocking when you think hard about who we're entrusting high office with. Within a couple of weeks of being sworn in as a senator in January of this year, 
she received a briefing, a private briefing with a few other senators on the state of the coronavirus that apparently, according to Chris Murphy, who was there, the senator from Connecticut, was dire and suggested we are not ready for this. She then went out, accused Democrats of hyping the danger for political purposes to bring down Donald Trump, said that we have a great government that's absolutely ready for this. In other words, misled the public about the briefing she had just gotten. And then whether she did it herself or her investment advisors did it for her, she and her husband began to sell off a lot of stocks, millions of dollars in stocks, which within a month or so meant that they avoided the some of the worst damage of the stock market collapse that came when the national shutdown began. So my, my sense of her is this is an utterly mediocre person who has no business being in the Senate, and we wouldn't have even noticed her because we've gotten used to that kind of thing, except that in the middle of the biggest calamity, maybe since World War II, she was misleading her constituents. And in a sense, whether by intention or just by luck, profiting off the pandemic. You know, uh, George, uh, you made the case that the president and his Republican allies stirred up this uh, distrust of elites. But just to push back on that a bit, hadn't the political and uh, financial elites of this country, you know, didn't they deserve uh, some of the distrust that they've gotten? It was the elites that got us into the the political elites that got us into the Iraq war. There was the political elites under President Clinton who began deregulating the financial community that ultimately led to the Great Recession of 2008. It was the uh, political elites of the Clinton campaign who completely failed to understand or grasp the level of blue collar discontent out there in the country. I mean, uh, should we really be trusting in the political elites who have failed us so many times in recent years? No, absolutely not. And I couldn't agree more. I've written a great deal about this in The Unwinding and, and also in the essay that we're talking about. I think the elites have failed again and again especially, as you say, the political and, let's say, the financial elites who are very incestuously tied together, as the career of Kelly Leffler makes clear. So, yeah, absolutely. There's, it, it's not as though just sheer relentless barrage of propaganda from Fox News turned the part of the American people against the federal government. It has been unable to solve our most basic problems of the last generation, whether it's climate change, inequality, decaying infrastructure, we could go down the list. The reasons are complicated. Part of it is gridlock in Washington. Part of it is the structure of our government in Washington. And part of it is the, the people themselves who are deeply divided. But there, yeah, there, there is no gold, you know, there's no gold ribbons for the federal government in the last couple of decades. I think Barack Obama tried to restore a kind of rational, progressive governance and to show that it could work. He had some successes. He also had some failures and he had a strong headwinds in the form of Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party. Um, but I'm certainly not making a case for uh, all of this falling on the heads of free market anti-government ideologues. I think they bear a fair amount of blame. 
and in some ways criticizing you know, and calling for a limiting of government has become, as Dan said, a nihilistic opposition to government itself in many ways. And that has made it easier for the Republican Party to say, you see, you can't trust the government. You can force the government to fail and then tell the people that the government has failed you. And that's, in a sense, been the policy of the Republican Party. But that's not well, the only problem. I, well, I, I want to pick up on that point about governing because you reserve some of your most withering criticism for the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who has been advising him throughout this uh, crisis. And I'm just going to read a sentence from the uh, the essay. To watch this pale, slim-suited dilettante breeze into the middle of a deadly crisis, dispensing business school jargon to cloud the massive failure of his father-in-law's administration, is to see the collapse of a whole approach to governing. That's a, putting a lot of responsibility on those on those slim shoulders. But <laughs> but talk about how you see Jared Kushner being emblematic. Uh, of this collapse. Well, I think he wanted that responsibility. He seemed to keep inserting himself in the middle of it. Kushner has absolutely no business being the shadow White House czar of the anti-pandemic effort. He doesn't know anything about public health. He doesn't has no background in it. He doesn't know about the workings of the federal government. And the proof is that it has failed at every turn since he got involved. And from the beginning, I'm not saying he is the reason, but he has been utterly unable to work the magic that he sort of promised when he said he would get his friends in the corporate world to set up a, a system of nationwide drive-through testing sites. That didn't happen. He was going to get um, a deal for ventilator production from General Motors. That didn't happen. And instead, what we get is just government by... PR by press conference. I think he was on Fox News just yesterday or maybe this morning saying this has been a fantastic success for the government. How can that be when we have passed 60,000 deaths, more than in Vietnam, when we have a third of the world's cases and only four or five percent of the world's population? How can it be anything but a failure? And then you start to say, well, why has it been a failure? Well, one reason is because a a government by nepotism, by corruption, by amateurism has replaced any semblance of a government by experts and competent people. And for me, Jared Kushner, I don't want to put all the blame on him. There's plenty to go around. But he asked for it because he's in the middle of it. And he, to me, symbolizes an approach to governing that is sort of contemptuous of government that says, I could, anyone can do this. I can do this. Get out of the way. Let me show you how it's done. That's been his approach. Would you rather have Steve Miller running the show than Jared Kushner? Well, Steve Miller is effective at what he does. He has been incredibly effective. You could say that the biggest promise kept from the 2016 campaign has been to reduce immigration and to demonize and make life hell for undocumented immigrants. So he's he's done a good job of that if that's the policy you want to pursue. And how would he do in this? He'd probably in some ways be more effective than Jared Kushner, but at what I don't know. I mean, it I have this feeling that at the White House, as long as this is really at its worst in democratic states and democratic cities, um, it's not 
uh, a house on fire. They can live with it. Let's get back to business. Let's reopen the country. If this were killing thousands of people in rural Kansas or in suburban or rural Texas, I think we would be getting a totally different message from the White House. And I, I know that sounds pretty harsh and cynical. I'm really only responding to what I hear from the president, who often talks about blue states and blue cities, and it's their fault, and why did they bring this on themselves, and why are they looking to us for help? It's as if they, the rest of us really aren't real Americans. He's only the president of the people who voted for him. We are uh, in the midst of a uh, presidential election, and there's another candidate running, uh, Joe Biden, who uh, you no doubt wrote about and dealt with a lot in your book about Richard Holbrook. And I want to ask you some questions about Biden's role in foreign policy during the Obama years. But just uh, before we get there, you have um, we've all seen Biden's... Um, interviews from his uh, home in Wilmington. He's uh, hasn't exactly uh, broken through and inspired a lot of confidence when you listen and watch Biden these days. Do you feel good about his chances of beating Donald Trump in the fall? Uh, I never feel good. <laughs> and especially not now. I mean, if you look at the polls, you ought to feel pretty good if you're a Democrat. Biden's ahead in every swing state by a lot of recent polling, including Florida, North Carolina, states that Trump absolutely has to win. Uh, and tr every time Trump gets on TV, I think it hurts him uh, and he can't help it because he's a narcissist and needs the attention. So in a way, the best campaign strategy for Biden is to let Trump's narcissism drive him in front of the cameras so that he can continue saying ridiculous and hateful things. But as a positive effort, I don't see very much coming from the Biden basement, the basement campaign. And I think for some Democrats, the hope is that he just kind of hangs in there and gives a plausible performance as a Democratic nominee and Trump defeats himself. What do you make of the uh, Tara Reid allegations? It's disturbing. I mean, the latest... Her mother calling into Larry King right around the time of the supposed incident. And then a friend saying she heard about it a couple of years later. Those are those are stronger pieces of evidence than anything that we heard in the Kavanaugh hearing. For me, the problem here is when you have an absolutist view that says any anything like this that appears in anyone's past, even if there's been no no apparent repetition of it, even if we can't be certain about it, is disqualifying. And that was the view about Kavanaugh. I understood that view, but it was obviously going to set a precedent that could be could go the other way. And now it seems like it is going the other way. I would vote for Joe Biden regardless of this incident. I hate to say that because it's it's such an ugly one. But if this happened, I would still vote for him. But it's harder to do that if you've already lay down a marker that says this is disqualifying. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think this is a problem for some of those on the short list to be vice president, particularly Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar because of their prominent roles during the Kavanaugh hearings. You, you just cannot 
get around the fact that if they felt as strongly as they did that the um, allegations uh, involving Kavanaugh from high school 30 years earlier were disqualifying for the Supreme Court, why this allegation involving Biden while he was a United States senator would not be equally disqualifying to be president of the United States? It's just one more bit of, you know, one more giant wave coming at our boat. I mean, it's just, there's no break from it. And I wonder how the Democratic Party and Democratic voters are going to deal with it. Will they deal with it by essentially turning a blind eye to it uh, and refusing to think hard about the hypocrisy that you're raising, Mike? Or will it have to be, really have to be brought out and, and hashed out and possibly end up being somehow the end of the Joe Biden candidacy. That seems like a long shot, but it's not going away. And it now seems to have taken a step toward plausibility. George, uh, Mike brought up your book, uh, your biography of, uh, of Richard Holbrook, Our Man, which is a really a brilliant biography. I wonder how you think Holbrook you know, would uh, be dealing with the crisis that we're in right now, which is, after all, not just a domestic health crisis, but a global emergency that uh, the the world has to kind of deal with uh, collectively. With all of his oversized flaws, his his vanity, his uh, self-destructive ambition, his towering ego, he was also a man of of action. And I, I just wonder, have you wondered what Dick Holbrook would be doing right now in a situation like this. Yeah, I have. And he he was not just a man of action, but a man of, of principle. He really believed in indispensable American leadership and in the need for international cooperation. He really believed in the UN. He would never be undercutting the World Health Organization at a time like this. He would point to its flaws, but then he would say, we need to fix it so that it can do the essential work that we need it to do, especially in poor countries. He cared about other countries and he would, I think, be running around in a frenetic way if he were, say, secretary of state and trying to organize an international response that didn't make this a zero sum game, that didn't make it a matter of my people or your people. How you do that in a pandemic, I don't know, because so many of the impulses are going the other way toward nationalism, toward protectionism, toward making sure that we produce our own medical equipment and um, that we grab the masks that are uh, on the market right now and make sure that our rivals don't get them. It would be hard. And it would also be hard because we really are no longer living in that period when American leadership was taken for granted. In fact, if anything, this crisis has shown that the rest of the world no longer looks to us for much of anything at all. And so I think Holbrook would in some ways be out of, he would be out of sync with the time, but his instinct would be to try to rally other countries to some kind of coordinated response that doesn't leave that doesn't turn it into um, me against you. By the way, what was that? Re- what was the relationship between Joe Biden and Dick Holbrook like? I-, I imagine they worked together a lot, very closely, but there must have been some rivalry there as well. 
They're about the same age. They they knew each other from the early 70s. They agreed about almost everything. They were both, you could say, centrist Democrats who then became liberal hawks in the 90s and were both very strong for intervention in Bosnia. They were both for the Iraq war. They were both for a strong effort in Afghanistan at nation building. And then they both began to turn against foreign entanglements and to think that the surge could not work when Obama sent an extra 60,000 troops to Afghanistan. So in, in other words, they really were very close on policy and they also despised each other. <laughs> Maybe because they were so close on policy, so close in age, both ambitious and egotistical. There was not enough room for <laughs> two people I, to stand on that same policy. I, I seem to remember this surfacing a bit when uh, when John Kerry was the Democratic nominee in 2004, and who, uh, I don't know if either of them would have ended up being his Secretary of State had he won, but I, I remember uh, that rivalry uh, surfacing at that time. They were the two contenders. From what I understand, it would have been Biden, not Holbrook, but that may not be certain because it usually isn't certain until after the election. And so that rivalry it was only intensified by the fact that they were competing for the job that both of them dearly wanted. I think Biden felt that Holbrook looked down on him as being more of a political hack than a foreign policy thinker, whereas Biden mm -hmm. thought he deserved more credit for putting pressure on Milosevic during the Bosnian War. <laughs> and um, I, I imagine Biden thought of Holbrook as having no political sense, you know, just being a, a diplomat who liked to fly around the world. So, you know, they were both, I think, had very worthy views and accomplishments. But in that kind of world, that, that means they're probably not going to get along very well. From your reporting on for the book and more generally about uh, foreign policy during the Obama years, can you point to an area or an instance where Biden actually made a difference? Certainly on Afghanistan, he was the strongest voice in the administration, the most influential on Obama to uh, to having fewer troops in Afghanistan and to avoiding anything like a full-blown counterinsurgency war. In that, he didn't succeed because we ended up with 100,000, far more than when o o Obama took office, and they were fighting a counterinsurgency war. But Biden, in a sense, could point to that and say, I told you this wouldn't work and it's not working. On Iraq, he wanted to get out of Iraq. He, he wanted to get out of both of those countries. He went from being a kind of hawkish Democrat to being a real skeptic about these forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there he was more successful because, in a sense, we did get out of Iraq. We reduced our troop numbers to you know just a few thousand by the end of 2011 and tried to continue to influence the government there with less and less luck because the Iranians were the main power. And we ended up with the rise of ISIS as a result. You could say that was a failure as well, or at least not a great success, because within a couple of years, ISIS was ready to take over most of the country. I think what Biden—Biden Biden really believes, like Holbrook did, in international organizations and alliances and cooperation and in talking to your— working with your friends and talking to your enemies. And that's a foreign policy that is so out of— 
fashion in this administration that, it, you know, Biden kind of represents a different era as as Holbrook did. But to me, it was a better era. It made more sense. It was more effective. And even though the wars that I just mentioned didn't go well, that foreign policy of internationalism has a lot of successes to its credit. And Biden was in the middle of some of that. George, um, this is my last question, but a lot of you know people have talked about how this uh, this virus um, has revealed our weaknesses, or in your medical analogy, our underlying conditions. And we've asked a lot of people who we've uh, interviewed on the podcast whether they see this in any way as an opportunity once these problems have been exposed to address them. And uh, I just wonder whether you see any silver linings here, if you have any sense of optimism that this country can kind of seize the moment and fix some of the underlying problems that you've uh, identified. I don't know that I have optimism because I really don't know if we can, but I have urgency. I have a sense that this is in some ways a last chance or a an obvious chance because so much has been exposed in so short a time and yet none of it should really be, it's shocking but not surprising because these are problems we've known about for a long time. Inequality, an economy that leaves so many people unprotected and and even desperate, a federal government that can't organize itself, that has stopped listening to its experts, a civil service that's been marginalized, uh, an infrastructure that has begun to decay, I mean, so many of these things, this should be a hinge moment that leads to a real regeneration of, of our national government and of, of, our, of our society. Will it? I don't know. It, a lot depends on the fall election, and then a lot depends on our leaders and ourselves. But to me, there's just no doubt that this is an alarm bell and we had really better hear it. And in some ways, there is something comforting in knowing that you've just been woken up and you, that you really have to respond. You can't go back to sleep. Well, on that, uh, on that note of, of urgency, if not optimism, <laughs> we, uh, we certainly uh, thank you for your time, George. Uh, really interesting conversation, terrific uh, piece in The Atlantic. We are living in a failed state, which people should, uh, should read. And we look forward to having you back on the podcast one of these days. Thank you both. I enjoyed it. Thanks to Northeastern University College of Sciences, Dr. Alessandro Vespagini and The Atlantic's George Packer for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.